Blog Talk Radio. language pathologist and welcome to Teach Me to Talk the podcast. I think you probably heard me talking there over the introduction. I've just asked Johnny if he could help me find my reading glasses <laughs> since I'm going to need those today for the show. But since I can't find them, I'm just going to jack up the Zoom and do what we all do when we're not quite ready, but that's all right. All right, today we're continuing the topic that we began in last week's show. And if you'll remember, we were talking about the four overall areas or the four big areas that we use when we start looking at a toddler with language delays or disorders. And remember, our first big area was treating a child's social skills. And the reason that we start there is, first of all, people miss this all the time. And parents, a lot of times, will not recognize that children, their own children, have some social interaction differences. And remember last week we said that's because whatever our experience is feels normal. So even if we are living in, and let's just use this not related to children, let's kind of take ourselves away from this for a minute, and then we'll we'll put ourselves right back in a role as a therapist or a parent, especially a parent, but anytime we're going through something and it stays the same for a long time, that begins to feel normal to us, even if it's really atypical. And so let's say that we're living just in a, let's say that it's a a really huge season of success for us and everything goes right and just things are falling into place and everyone is healthy and just just everything, and we begin to think about that as completely normal, and then let's say real life smacks us upside the head, and things start going wrong, someone gets sick, we have unexpected bills, like the car breaks down, your house, a big repair with your house, whatever, and then things sort of start falling apart, and then if that season kind of persists, then that feels normal too, and the truth is, Neither one of those things is really normal because life is a series of ups and downs. We have to kind of find that happy medium no matter what's going on around us. But my point there is whatever you're currently going through, if it lasts a long time, it feels normal to you. And that's the same with a lot of parents, especially first-time parents. If they have a child with some differences developmentally, they think that all children are doing the same things as their child unless they're really getting information from someone else, that really begins to feel normal to them. So they might think that nobody's one- or two-year-old really talks, or they might think that no one's child follows directions and that nobody's kid actually sustains eye contact and interaction. So we have to be careful with that as therapists and really talk to parents about these differences when we see them. And let me say, this can happen to therapists too, because how many times as a speech-language pathologist do you hear a two-year-old that talks or a three-year-old that talks and talks well with a really developed vocabulary and long sentences, and you are just shocked because we have normalized atypical development and language delays. And so all the kids that we work with are late talkers and kids with, even more significant developmental problems. And so we also can sometimes become um, 
a little surprised and think that that skills that are on the lower end of normal or below normal, that's normalized for us too. So you have to be super, super, super careful with that when we are thinking about children, both as a parent and a therapist, so that we are really looking at typical development or quote-unquote normal, what those expectations are, and then judging everything or assessing, comparing everything toward that. The other thing that we want to do, let me just say this about therapists too, again, we can get so used to comparing children on our caseloads or thinking about the kids on our caseloads who have just done the best, our little stars. And again, we make that the the what the benchmark is when, truth be told, any child that we're seeing who's qualified for services, particularly if you're not in private practice and don't just get to decide that on your own, but if you have any kind of eligibility requirements or criteria and children have to meet those and so... We never see a kid that's anywhere near normal in the capacity of our jobs as a therapist. Now, if you work in a school or if you are parenting toddlers right now and you know, you're know you kind of in the throes of motherhood right there and you're around a lot of typically developing kids all the time, that's certainly different. And you are at a huge... Uh, you're, you have a huge advantage over those of us who are not around typically developing children all the time and who don't have our own little babies running around at home anymore and don't have grandbabies yet. <laughs> but those kinds of things are really, really important to us as therapists who, again, help us keep our, as I have said over and over and wrote a post about this, keep our finger on the pulse of normal. So we have to be sure that we're always doing that and always thinking about it. And it's it's hard as a therapist to remember this, but let me tell you, it's even harder as a parent So we have to be sure that we're talking with parents about these social skill differences. And, again, it is so easy for parents to miss these. So let's just run through what it looks like when a child is not interacting or when those social skills are not coming in as expected. We might not have much sustained eye contact. Many times adults question uh, a child's ability to hear who is not a good responder and doesn't have typically developing social interaction skills, they may say, gosh, I'm afraid he's deaf. I'm afraid he can't hear as well as he should. Because why? Because that child doesn't always respond. He doesn't look when his name is called. He doesn't follow directions. He doesn't see, he tunes out other people when they talk to him. So one of the things that parents will say often is I really question this child's ability to hear. And let me just say, if you're a parent listening right now and you've thought that, if you have not gotten an audiological evaluation, a hearing test, start there because that is, again, I'm not saying that hearing impairment is an easy fix. I'm not saying that at all. But it's different because there are some mechanical things that we can do with hearing aids. And so that certainly is an option. And so you always just want to rule that out as well. So just a little side trail there. If you're if you're a parent listening to the show and, and that's something you've thought about before, talk up to your pediatrician about that and go ahead and get a referral so that you can get a hearing test and rule out that problem definitively so that you don't have to worry about that <coughs> excuse me as uh, often as you have in the past. And hearing is a really big deal. You know, kids have to hear language in order to use language. So we always want to make sure that we get that taken care of too. 
More often than not, though, the problem isn't hearing. It's in how a child responds to and processes language. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. All right, other characteristics of children who have social skill differences as toddlers. Those little friends almost prefer being left alone. So let me just say we need to contrast this with a typically developing toddler who wants his parents' undivided attention 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our little friends with social skill differences aren't that way. They are very content to be in their rooms for hours at a time or on their own. And again, let me just say if you're listening to this and you're don't get stuck in labeling your child as, well, my child doesn't do that because he's independent. You know, that word, every time I hear it, it just, you know, sends off alert signals in my brain, ding, 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 because that means not that a child has chosen this kind of lone wolf personality. It means he doesn't know how to interact with other people because if he did know that, he would prefer that because life would be a lot simpler for him and easier for him and he wouldn't be nearly as frustrated if he could make you understand his needs and wants so that you could help him and you could be his accomplice <laughs> in what he wants to do during the day, whether that's get something to drink, whether that's watch a show, whether that's going outside or changing his activity or looking for a toy when it's lost, everything is better for kids when they figure out how to communicate and how to pull you in and let you know what's going on in their little worlds. And so it's just always a big alert signal to me when a parent says a word like independent because that really does mean to me that that child doesn't know how to interact. And so therapists listen up for that word. When a parent uses that, that's code for he's having difficulty initiating and responding with me. All right, so let's go on to the next characteristic that a child might exhibit when we see a red flag problems. A lot of times those kids seem to prefer objects over people, and so they strongly protest when their attention is divided from that. Just use an example like an iPad, and you try to take a child's iPad away, and he throws a huge temper tantrum. Those are usually children, and, and let me just say too, toddlers are all prone to falling apart and having meltdowns and temper tantrums and fits, whatever word you want to use for that. That's part of toddlerhood too because that's emotional immaturity and that's just a developmental phase that they're in. And let me just say, I know plenty of adults who melt down and have temper tantrums too. So it's not just limited there to toddlerhood, but it is expected with toddlers. But let's, let's you know, we're going to kind of put that aside. When you can't distract a toddler from that preference, that strong preference, preference, say, with his iPad or a spinny toy or whatever he happens to like, when it's hard to get him to move on from that, then that's that developmental difference that you're looking at because toddlers as whole, even though they are temperamental and they want their own way and they do fall apart a lot more easily than an older child would, they can still be comforted and they can still be consoled and you can distract them and help them move along to the next thing and everything is not the end of the world. So when we see those big emotional overreactions to something like having your toy taken away or moving on from one activity to another, that's a red flag for a social difference too. So if you're a parent listening to that and you have a child who, you know, it takes a couple of hours to calm down once you've rocked his boat, 
know that that really is atypical. And this is exactly the kind of difference that we're talking about. Um, Kids with social skill differences also, like we talked about, tune out, ignore, or avoid other people. You might have to call their names a lot. Sometimes kids with social skill differences don't respond to their names, and actually that's one of the characteristics that would differentiate a child with a typical language delay or who's just a late talker. Those kids respond to their names, but when we start having a child who habitually doesn't respond and who who had just, you know, again, they're two years old and not responding to their names, we know that that's probably a marker for a more severe developmental issue like autism or a significant cognitive difference. We've already talked about hearing. We've already kind of ruled that out. But any time that we have a kid who's over 12 months or so, is <coughs> excuse me, and is not just rapidly alerting to their name, that that's something that we need to talk about and that we need to think about and we need to help them learn how to respond quickly to their names because that is something, again, that's a really basic, fundamental skill that all toddlers should be doing by 12 months. All right, another characteristic of a child who has some social skill issues is that they seem flat or unresponsive. Even when people try to talk to her, it might take her a long time to smile at you. You might try all of your best tricks, but she's still pretty solemn or she's still pretty emotionless. And again, that's not typical either. Uh, kids with social skill differences, it takes a lot of work to keep their attention on you so that if there's, if there's an activity with a choice within the activity of looking at you or looking at the object, they always... Focus on the object. So when you're playing with them and talking to them, and therapists will recognize this example, they may never look up from the toy, or they may if if don't use screens with these kids. Just stop it. Even if you're a therapist, don't do that because you are fighting a losing battle with trying to get a child to include you with within that activity. He's just not going to be able to share that experience with you. And so when we see that it takes us a lot of effort to keep a child even sort of including us in the activity, that's a major social skill difference. And so if you're a parent listening to this, that would mean that you know, once you put your child in the bathtub and you, you just kind of disappear, they don't even know that you're there anymore because they start focusing on their own toys and they don't even really kind of re-alert to you until it's time to get out, until you're reaching for them or you're doing all the heavy lifting with communication and you're really trying your best to keep them with you and, and get them to pay attention to you. And a lot of times parents don't realize how hard they have to work to make that happen when parents are just kind of naturally gifted at doing that with children. But sometimes parents don't even notice it, like we talked about at the beginning. They just think all kids ignore their parents. They think all kids don't really listen to what their mom and dad say. And, again, that's just absolutely not true. So you have to readjust your perception of typical development here and recognize that big uh, social difference there. Other things that a parent might say about a child with a social skill difference is that he routinely blows off other people. And I've had so many parents have used that expression with me that I start to really recognize it, and that's what, how I describe it. They might, a child might give an adult a brief moment of attention, and then poof, it's gone. So as a therapist, you recognize this too. You'll get into uh, your visit with the child. 
let's say you're in a clinical setting and he comes to see you and he sort of seems excited about seeing you in the lobby, but by the time you walk back to your little treatment room, he's not as interested in you anymore. It was just that initial greeting period where he sustained attention for a little while. And again, it may be an improvement over what it was at the beginning. And so we certainly don't want to knock that. But at the same time, that fleeting attention to other people is a real difference in typically uh, when you compare those kids with typically developing toddlers. Parents might describe children like this as shy or loner. Or again, we said a kid who they describe as independent. We can't think about it like a personality difference here or a temperament or even something that a child is choosing to do. When there's a one, a two, a three, a four-year-old who is not really interactive with people, especially his parents, that's a big problem. You know, his siblings, let's say, again, that, you know, usually kids, even even kids with even pretty significant social skill differences may have strong bonds with their siblings and with their parents. But again, if you're comparing that relationship or that response with their sibling versus someone they've never seen before, you know, that's going to be different for all children. But at the same time, there still may be some differences even within that with the quality or quantity of interacting that a child's doing, even with his closest relatives. Let me say one more thing about that. Because sometimes children, even with who go on to be diagnosed with autism, have that strong emotional bond and connection with their parents and with their siblings. We don't even really look at that when we're assessing social skill differences. This really should be how a child interacts with other people. Now, not complete strangers. You know, we're not really assessing it like that. But let's say his reaction to uh, daycare workers or his reaction to uh, a therapist or his doctor or the neighbor that he sees, but he doesn't see all day every day, but he sees the neighbor long enough that he should have some kind of recognition and he should be responding when the neighbor tries to talk to him. And so, again, you've got to look outside that uh, parent relationship and sibling relationship to really assess social interaction, and that's what we do when we're looking for characteristics of autism in children. Um, A lot of times... Adults and other kids will comment that a child doesn't seem to like them, the child with social differences, and again, that's that's not it at all. They just don't know how to interact. And many, many times parents will report that a chi- their child with social skill differences has no interest with other children. And let me just say, a lot of parents will say, well, if he doesn't have any interest in other children, let me just put him in daycare and see how it goes. He's just going to learn how to talk by being in daycare. That doesn't happen either because when a child is connected, isn't connected to even adults that he's around, it's just highly unlikely that he'll really make significant connections with other little friends. Now, it's great when that happens. And when you have a child at home who's been really isolated socially and you put them in a more structured setting like a little family daycare or a little program where not very many kids or you put them in a a program with highly educated caregivers, teachers, therapists, 
who really are trained to deal with toddlers with developmental differences and preschoolers with developmental differences. Of course those kids are going to make progress. But if you're just putting a child in run-of-the-mill daycare down the street and thinking all of this social skill stuff will just clear up within a week or two, no, that's unrealistic. And so that whole get him in daycare recommendation that even physicians give sometimes is is not always the answer for children with social skill differences. Those kids really need one-on-one interaction with an adult. And so we're going to talk about the things that we as adults can do now to strengthen social skills when we are worried about this with our, our own child or with a child that we are working with. All right, so let's just run through these strategies. And we're not going to continue talking about <laughs> the social skill aspect beyond this show. So we have tr- uh, about 40 minutes left of this show, so I'm going to try to talk about everything I can, every strategy that we can cram in, and then we're going to move on and not talk about social skill issues. We'll talk about that next piece in that overall treatment hierarchy. All right, but what is a parent to do or what can therapists do when we are thinking about social skill issues with children? What are the best strategies for helping a toddler learn to consistently interact and respond to people? Well, your number one strategy is we need to consistently respond to him. And in this day and age that we live in where everybody is super fixated on their own devices, whether that be a tablet or a phone or whatever your little personal choice uh, for technology should be or is at the moment, you know, so many adults are very, very, very distracted now and very focused on uh, their work when they're at home because their phone is constantly dinging or they're constantly checking their emails, or even parents who are just have a big social life, constantly getting texts from people. The the social media alerts are just the worst when you're getting constant dings from Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and it can really take up all of your focus and all of your attention. And so, so many times. We don't consistently respond to children, to their needs, and so, again, that becomes normal to them. And sometimes I think kids just sort of stop trying because they think, what's the point? My mom's so busy with whatever. And, again, a two-year-old isn't really consciously thinking like this, but we do mold their behaviors by our own responses to when their initiations with us. And by that I mean if we don't ever answer them when they cry, the crying will diminish. And and don't take that as a therapy recommendation. (laughs) I'm not saying that. I think all of us should always be loving and responsive to children, and that's my point here, is that we've got to respond to them and we've got to connect with them. And that we can't be the reason that they're not initiating and responding. And lots and lots of parents right now are super checked out. I think we have a big problem with social media addiction, and I do not want to get on that little soapbox this afternoon because, you know, we could take up the rest of the show with how I feel about that. But that it's a real problem. And so we have to really talk to parents about that, about putting their phones down and not – Uh, giving a child their full attention when they're playing with them and focused on them. And let me just say, too, the next this goes with the next strategy. Let's just move on and talk about this, and we'll mold all these and blend all this together. We can't let a toddler check out or be alone for long periods of time, and so it's the same thing as not consistently responding to them. 
to maximize a child's ability to want to connect with us, he has to be with us. It's really going to be super hard for him to connect with us if we're in the kitchen and he's in his bedroom. (laughs) That's not going to happen. We have to be face-to-face. We have to be with children. And I'll just tell you, I talked to two different parents this week, a mom the other day on, I guess it was Tuesday, today's Thursday, and a dad today just answering the phone at the office. And both of them reported concerns with their children's social skills. And so this is one of the first recommendations I made is, you know, you've got to have him be with you for long periods of time. So you cannot have him go off and do his own thing like we were talking about a few minutes ago. That is just absolutely the worst case scenario for a child who is having difficulty learning how to Make eye contact and stay with you and like interacting with you and and being real purposeful and sharing experiences with you. You You've got to be close to him. And so both of these parents were talking about that with just the challenges that they've had with that. The one parent said that they were looking for a home and moving, and so that kind of became all-consuming for those parents. And so their their child, they just let him do what he wanted to do and kind of, do again, occupy himself. And you can understand why the parents did that because, goodness, we have all been in situations where whatever problem or whatever priority is going on, we just devote all our energy to that and everything else just kind of slides by. That happens a lot when a parent has, when a family welcomes a new baby. The older children don't get as much individual time and don't get as much attention. And no wonder because a parent's attention is divided. But at the same time, Typically, developing children handle that a lot better than our little guys who have social interaction problems to begin with. And so when we allow them to continue just to do their own things and be alone, they're never learning any language during that. And don't fool yourself thinking that a screen, so showing them you know, their favorite movies 15 times a day where they hear someone else talk, that is no substitute for real interaction with a real person. When we look at babies' brains with CAT scans or MRIs or whatever they're using in research, there is a definitive difference between the level of brain activity when a child watches a screen versus real life, when mom talks to him in real life or when any other real person is right in his little face interacting with him. So don't use that whole, well, he's watching educational television all day or he's playing an educational app for three hours at a time. No, it's not the same. And so we have to be super, super careful about that. And so what do we do? We keep children with us as much as possible during the day. So we don't let them go do their own thing. That means if we're in the kitchen, they're in the kitchen with us. If they wander away, we go get them. Instead of trying to put the baby gate up to keep them out of the kitchen, we baby gate them in the kitchen with us. If we're outside, they go outside with us. If we, I want to tell you a story. I treated a child as a, gosh, probably almost 15 years ago now, and his parents were physicians, and they would almost brag about how their child could stay in the house while they were out at the barn taking care of their horses. And so they had a monitor so they could see if something, if an emergency was happening, but they really were pretty honest about leaving him alone for two and three hours at a time just with the monitor with his baby gate. Now, it was the fanciest arrangement I had ever seen. They were so blessed uh, with resources. 
he had every toy known to man. The TV was always on. <laughs> he he. They had provided external entertainment, but what that little guy needed was that one-on-one interaction with his mom or with his dad. And so, you know, when I suggested, why don't you take him out to the barn, that recommendation didn't fly, but it's still the same recommendation that I would make even today. Children have to be with us to learn from us. And so parents, you just have to think about just kind of committing to that and saying, well, I'm just not going to take a shower or be in this bathroom by myself for a year or two probably until we get this under control. I'm not going to go do, you know, do whatever activity. I'm not going to go read a book in another room while I just let him fend for himself in his room for two hours at a time and I just pop my head in and say, you know, how you doing, buddy? That's not enough for a kid with language issues or and especially social issues. So you have to keep them with you, interacting with you, talking with you, listening to you. They have to at least be in the same room with you so they have the opportunity to communicate. And you do have to address them individually and try your best to keep them involved in the activity so that if you're doing laundry, they are helping you. You're saying, look, get a sock. Let's throw it in the washer or taking clothes out, or if you're loading the dishwasher, you even if you're not letting them help you load the dishwasher, you have them over sitting at that next cabinet playing in the bowls and the, the spoons, and you're giving them something constructive to do, and you're talking with them about that, even if they brought their own toys into the kitchen. Even if you're cooking or doing dishes or whatever, you're still making yourself and inserting yourself, making yourself a part of his what he's doing. So that's a big, big recommendation. And therapists don't let that go with a parent who's saying something like, you know, we have a situation where one of the parents works from home and the child just, again, kind of does their own thing for, you know, six, eight hours a day. You've got to really talk to parents about that and say that is not an ideal situation. Now, it's real easy for me when someone calls my office or is a guest on the podcast or sends me an email to say that because I don't have any skin in that game because I don't have to see those people face-to-face. And I can be blatantly, bluntly honest and it not really affect me because I don't have to look at those parents week after week after week after week. And so it is a little different when we are seeing families face-to-face. And so you will have to soften this advice a little, but you still need to share it with parents and you need to say, hey, I know that you've got this work situation going on and you were just doing the best you can do and I completely understand and I get it, but... This is not an ideal situation for your child. Actually, it's almost harmful because we're doing exactly opposite of what we need to be doing to get him on his way to learning how to communicate. And when you word it like that, it is a blow because a parent never wants to feel like, you know, I am not doing everything I can for my child. But when they're not, they're not. And so they need to know what changes they can make. And even if it's, you know, Short term, they can't do anything different. They could still think about, you know, what can I do in six months that would look different than this? What can I do in three months? What can I do next week that would be different? I may not be able to change this today, but over this next couple of weeks, I ought to be able to figure out how can I see him? How can I have him with somebody else more? Can I hire a teenager or college kid to come in and just kind of do nothing but really, really play with him? like a, you know, hyped-up babysitting situation, 
Could I get my mom to come over and play with him one-on-one more often? Could I hire the neighbor who's great with kids? Can I send it? Would she take him, you know, a couple of hours, two times a week? Any little thing that we can do like that to provide that extra one-on-one interaction is what we need to be thinking about. And as, as parents and as therapists, we need to talk to parents about these kinds of things and help them work through it. And even if a parent gets a little bit mad, you need to always focus on the kid. And like I said in that previous example, you know, this is just so far from what we need to be doing for him. And I know that you're trying and I, I know that you want to get there. but And I know that that's not going to happen today. But let's think about even little ways that we can increase that level of social interaction. Now, I've said this a lot on the show and I'm going to repeat it today. Research says that children who have significant social differences need 20 to 25 hours a week of interaction and intervention to make a real difference in their skill level. So sometimes making that recommendation as a therapist, parents kind of freak out about that. So they think that's way unrealistic for whatever their situation is, but you've got to help them learn how to carve out that time. And again, one thing that that parent might have to do is just log how much time they are spending in one-on-one interaction. And they may not be completely cooperative with that request, but even if you just talk about that minimally the next few times you see them, That will make a big difference to a parent. They don't have to turn it into you like a big report card. You know, I'm coming back to say that, you know, I barely spent 30 minutes in interaction with my child today between, you know, five minutes here with a diaper change and 10 minutes here while I was talking to him while I made his breakfast and then five minutes while I changed her and then, Her dad played with her for 20 minutes on the floor when he got home. Sometimes it's like that, and then a parent will see, gosh, that's not very much interaction at all. And if they're honest and if they can be self-reflective, they'll recognize that even if they don't share that with you. So it's a recommendation that I always make, that 20 to 25 hour a week. And that really lights a fire under lots of parents, and they make big changes right away. You might make that recommendation, and then when they come back to see you a week or two later or you go to see them, boy, they are excited to tell you the big differences, the big changes that they've made and what differences have resulted from that. Um, I talked to a dad on the phone today, and he said that he and his wife recognized what had happened with his son, and even in three weeks' time, they've seen a big difference in him when they've just decided to really spend more time with him, and that's all he said. He said, spend more time with him. And so sometimes it's just as simple as that. I didn't ask Dad what they were doing. You know, it really doesn't matter what activity they were doing. If they were interacting and if he was helping draw his child in to learning to communicate with him, who cares what they were doing? Who cares if that's bath time or playing outside or getting down on the floor and playing or Dad keeping him with him while he does family chores? or if dad doesn't play music in the car, he just talks to his child and really has some nice conversation and the kid really is tuned in, the child has not disconnected himself. But again, see how those simple changes can make a big difference. So as therapists, we need to talk about that, and as parents, we need to think about that and see if we're getting close to that um, time requirement. All right, the next 
recommendation for helping improve social skills in toddlers when they are having difficulty with eye contact one of the first things we need to be sure that we're doing is placing ourselves in the best possible location to ensure that a child will look at us. So I tell parents we've got to get eye-to-eye and face-to-face. And so that means that if a child is sitting on the floor, you have to get even lower than you would be if you were just, certainly if you were standing, but even sitting on the floor, sometimes we have to really crouch down so that our faces are in their little faces. I've made this recommendation a lot on the show and in all the courses that I teach, and it's one that I'll just stick by forever. When I cannot get a kid to look at me, I put them up on a chair or a couch and I sit on the floor. Then I can sort of contain them if I'm quick enough and if they're not fast enough, but their little faces are just right there. And so do everything you can to be in a child's direct line of vision and on his level. And just making that recommendation to parents is really, really good. A lot of times, especially dads, will start either get down on the floor with their kids a lot more or pick their child up a lot more and hold them. So, again, that face-to-face interaction is right there. Um, <coughs> so please, please, please think about that, that positioning recommendation is super practical and it's really, really important when we're looking at getting a child to make and maintain eye contact. Now, when we're thinking about eye contact as a social skill, now we don't want to force it, like we don't want to take a kid's little chin and say, look at me. You know, and again, all of us as parents have done something similar to that, so don't beat yourself up too much. But you can't really do that as the main way to get a child's attention. You just can't. And so we have to make ourselves really worth watching. And so that means that we have animated facial expressions. That means that we are we're make ourselves pleasant to look at. So we're smiling. We're changing our facial expressions. We're widening our eyes. We're raising our eyebrows. We're also making ourselves sound really, really fun. We, and one of the things we're going to talk about a little later is sounding more like a kid and less like an adult. And we'll get there in a minute, but my point here is don't force that eye contact. Really, really give a child a reason to want to look at you and a reason to want to pay attention and a reason to include you uh, in his whatever he's doing and share that experience with you. I think the best thing to do, again, is just to make yourself as, fun a play partner as you can possibly be i'm going to talk a little bit about that in a minute too and all these recommendations do overlap a little bit but they should because our overall goal is the same it's helping a child learn to respond to you and improving his ability to interact socially and part of that too that i want to talk about here is just making yourself as loving and as warm and as accepting and as genuine as possible I call that lavish love, and I I probably didn't, that's probably not original to me. I probably heard it from someone else, but that is how we want to be, especially as a child's parents, but even as therapists. When we work with babies and toddlers and preschoolers, we just want to be as loving and as connected and emotionally warm as we possibly can with children, and I think sometimes we can get so burned out with our jobs that we just are not as on and as connected from our end as we should be with kids. So we have got to try our best to be as joyful as possible when we have trouble or when we interact with a child who has trouble 
responding to us. We have to make ourselves bright and fun to listen to and uh, to look at. So be sure that you're talking about that with parents if you're a therapist. And, again, that can be a, a little bit uncomfortable. You don't want to say to a mom, you know, you are as flat as your child. No wonder your child is expressionless because that's what he gets from you. We certainly cannot do that. But at the same time, we can talk about heightened affect and explain what that is. We can talk about animated facial expressions. We can say, he is going to tune you out just like he tunes out that chair unless you are over-the-top fun. Now, sometimes we can go too much with that and that we'll, we'll scare a kid or we'll overstimulate a child. And so you want to find that just right spot. But my experience has been for most parents that they need to rev it up instead of pulling it back. So talk to parents about that and and having them really increase their own level of interaction with their children who are having these kinds of problems. All right, the next recommendation that we want to make with this is sometimes if I can't get a child to look at me, help him touch your face. If you can't get a kid to maintain consistent eye contact and he's just all over the place, take his little hands when he's right in front of you and instead of you holding his face, let him hold your face. A child's eyes usually follow their hands. So if you place his your hands over his little hands and put them on your cheeks, children will almost always look at you. And sometimes I really will almost always take my voice really low to a whisper almost because that's enticing to children too. And so that's just a little trick. You can't do that all day every day. But when you really need their attention, that's a tip for you to be able to do that. And a lot of times that's where we start with kids with eye contact. We give them practice with that kind of close connectedness, and then they want that more and more because they learned that that feels good. Now, sometimes kids who are on the spectrum avoid eye contact because it, it is unpleasant to them. They do not get the same feel-good reactions that we do when, or a typically developing uh, system does when it receives input from another person. And so sometimes our little friends with sensory differences, like autism, will over-respond to that. And that closeness and eye contact, particularly when you're that close, is uncomfortable for them. So we have to be respectful of that. And a lot of times in that situation, if they're not, they'll learn how to look at you by doing the little game that I just talked about where you put their hands on your face. And I usually, you know, call a child's name during that time or say, you know, hi or hey or whisper, again, like whatever our instructions are or whatever we're wanting to talk about. But that is how we can just systematically increase the length of time that a child will allow that level of emotional closeness. So think about that as a therapist. That's a good way to get it. Now, parents are usually a little better with that because they have – two years' worth of experiences to build on with a child, and a child naturally wants to be close to his parents like that. And so you can talk with parents, too, about when do you get the best kinds of eye contact with him and really talk about how to expand that and build on those kinds of moments. And those are special loving moments between a parent and a baby, too. So we want to do everything we can to to increase the amount of time that parents feel that way about their children and that children get that opportunity with that level of connectedness. 
All right, we talked about this a little bit. The next strategy is to sound fun, less like an adult and more like a kid. So this means that we do not talk in paragraphs and we do not talk as fast as I'm talking here on the show to try to cram it all in. We just don't have that same adult-sounding conversational tone or manner. So we need to model, we need to say less but make more sounds. So lots of different play sounds or little sound effect things. Fewer words, shorter sentences, and even lots of our children are at the language level where we need to just be talking in lots of single words and short phrases because that's what they're able to process or have a better shot at being able to link meaning with words. Uh, Nancy Kaufman said years ago, you've got to pull the words out of the blah, blah to make those words important and salient for children. So they have to really stand out. And if you are talking too much or talking like you're talking to an adult, chances are a child with these kinds of social connected connectedness issues will also probably likely have receptive language delays too so they're not understanding words as well as other children their own age they're not following directions like we would expect so you've got to really think about that too and really reduce the complexity of the language that you're using so you just keep your language really really simple and even though a child will still hear adult language models and he certainly needs to to be able to mature and learn the rhythm of language and, again, learn what words mean. But he'll get all that. You will not be able to keep things as simple and uncomplicated all the time. He's still going to hear adult language models. So don't don't worry about that. Just be sure that when you're talking with him that you are really sounding a lot more like a kid and a lot less like a mother so that he has a reason to tune in and want to include you. Another recommendation here is just a no-brainer, but let me just say it. When you are working on helping a child learn to like you and like being with you and spending more time with you, you need to do things he already likes. It is human nature to try to avoid things that we aren't good at or that we don't like. And so as a therapist or as a teacher, we certainly are going to work on those kinds of things because that's what therapy is, <laughs> learning how to do things that a child can't already do. But at the same time, most of the time it does not matter what materials we use or what activities we use. We're working on skills, not on activities. And so you'll take a child's interest and his own little personal, um, I don't want to say obsessions here, but his own, his, what he likes. You want to make sure that you're doing what he likes. And as a parent, that means that a child gets to do a lot of fun things with you several times a day. If you're a therapist, that means that you want to make the most of your 45 minutes or an hour or however long he's with you. During those times, your number one goal here has to be having fun and just learning to enjoy being together. So look at what a kid likes to do. For a lot of uh, parents, they think, well, my child's favorite thing to do is take a bath. And I say to mom, well, <laughs> you've got some choices here. You can just stay in the bathtub for longer periods of time when you're already giving him a bath or just 
giving baths more often. And I've had a lot of parents say, man, I'm doing a bath in the morning, a bath in the afternoon, and a bath at night now because that's when he's most engaged with me and that's when he's most receptive to listening to what I have to say. That's when he's following some directions and he's learning to play with me and that's when I get the most eye contact and that's when I get the most giggles and the most engagement, as I've already said, for the whole day. And so (laughs) moms say, well, I'm just going to do it. Surely this won't last forever. Surely right now if he's taking an hour bath in the morning and a 30-minute bath in the afternoon and I'm letting him stay in even longer at night and we're getting a lot done and I, I feel closer to him and I feel like we're making progress here and he's understanding me more, they say so be it. That's what we're going to do. Kids might enjoy other things. They might really like roughhousing or really like being outside in the backyard. That's going to be a problem during the winter time, unless a parent really likes cold and you can figure out what to do. But my point here is we've got to do what they like so that they will naturally want to stay with it longer and include us. Another recommendation I make to parents is, You have got to be ready to play, 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 play with the kid. And when you are sick of all that, you have got to play some more. And just that's what kids are doing during that one-on-one interaction. Now, again, we're always keeping them with us. So they're doing our family chores and doing all of the other kinds of things that aren't quite so fun. But at the same time, we need to really increase that one-on-one interaction. And so playing It's the best way to do that. And it doesn't have to always be playing with toys. You can play those fun little social games. You know, Hannon calls those things people games. I call them social games and have written tons and tons and tons of information about that at teachmetotalk.com. And it's just so important with that that we make our interactions with children who avoid interaction as pleasant and as fun and as rewarding as possible so that we give them reasons, again, to want to interact. Another thing that you need to do is limit distractions when we're working on responding. So we've already talked about how screens can just be a really big interference when we're trying to get a child to include us, too. So for lots of parents, that means not using the iPad or your phone as an entertainment device for children, not letting them veg out to a movie, movie after movie after movie. It might mean that if a child is overstimulated with his siblings running around all the time, that we get the siblings something better to do while we devote a lot of special one-on-one time to that toddler who's struggling developmentally. So really, really think about that. Sometimes it's just that a child's favorite toys are so enticing to them that they can't possibly include you in that activity and direct some of their attention to you. So sometimes we even have to pull back on their very favorite things when that limits their ability to let us play with them. So be be careful of that too. Sometimes we talked about this toy piece. Instead of giving a kid a toy to play with with us, We have to be the toy. I did a whole series of podcasts about this, gosh, years ago, probably 2014, 2015. So if you want to scroll back through that information to that series, uh, Be the Toy. I don't remember what time of year it was. Again, I'm having trouble remembering the year. I just know that I, I did it a while back with lots and lots of ideas on those podcasts 
for how we can be a child's toy, how we can be the playmate there. And so go back and listen to that. We have got to, uh, again, limit those distractions so that if a child is too fixated on a toy, we use something that he doesn't like quite as much so that he can include us in that too. Another recommendation that I make to parents all the time, and especially to therapists, is avoid power struggles with children. If a child is really resistant to including you during play, look for those opportunities to join him when it does not make him as mad. And again, that goes back to doing what a child likes. If you know that you're going to set a child off by doing X, don't do X, <laughs> especially at the beginning when we are really trying to establish that relationship with him. Or as a parent, you've already got that relationship going, but when you are just doing your best and interaction is your goal and you just want to keep him engaged with you and playing with you and staying with you, don't make him mad if you can avoid it. So really, really... Look at the kinds of things that he likes to do and do it with him. And, again, especially for your little language teaching time, when your little home therapy time, really avoid power struggles during those times so that you are not constantly having to help him regulate again. And by that I mean if he's had a fit on the ground and is – really upset, there's no way that he can learn from you. You're going to have to spend some time getting him back to baseline before he's ready to interact with you and learn from you again. So it makes no sense to do things that you know will irritate him and annoy him and frustrate him, especially at the beginning. So avoid those power struggles. Um, another recommendation, let's say we've talked about lavish love. Let's talk about this one last point. Be really persistent in your attempts to join him. So playfully try to participate in everything that he does. Dr. Greenspan, Stanley Greenspan, was great when he wrote about this in his four-time approach with children is really, really, especially when a kid is ignoring you and tuning you out, just do everything you can to try to get him to include you. And it might mean playfully obstructing him as he tries to run by you or sabotaging his activities. Let's say he wants to have ten trains and hook them all up and you only let him have one train. You keep the nine trains so that he has a reason to come interact with you. And sometimes, again, we we certainly want to avoid those power struggles, but you can tease and play and cajole the child even as you're withholding things from him. And it doesn't have to be mean-spirited. You can still act like it's fun and act like you fully expect the child to participate and you fully expect him to be able to request in whatever way possible and include you in whatever way possible. And so for some kids that's just going to be the second they look at you, even if they're protesting or, you know, a ah, little whine there because they want to train, you take that as a request. They looked at you, they they vocalized, and boom, they get another train. And then they're going to want more and they will persist in those higher level communicative behaviors, and that's what we want. That's progress. So be sure that you are being persistent in trying to stay with him and stay in an activity. Repeat whatever it is that he's doing. If he wants to you know, be on his belly and mess with the carpet, then you need to get down and be on your belly and 
rub the carpet too. You know, do whatever you need to do at the beginning. If he's rolling a car on the back of the couch, you get a car and roll it with him and crash your car into his. Just be super, super persistent about joining him and letting him have fun or learn to have fun with you. Be sure that you're doing that. You have to keep things simple when you're doing it. So if let's go back to that car example. Let's say a child is rolling cars on the back of the couch and he doesn't really want anything to do with you. Well, you can't come in and, and bring the Hot Wheels set and say, oh, look, now it's time to play garage. I have a garage right here. Let's take your car and put it in the garage. That is not going to work. You've got to keep it a lot simpler than that. So I talked about we would crash the car into him. If I could, I would squeeze on the other couch, uh, other side of the couch and do a little improvised peekaboo where I'm going up and down and saying, you know, doing everything I can to put my face in his line of vision so I'm keeping my head <laughs> level with that car so that he's watching me as he's rolling his car and I'm trying to talk to him and, again, persistently join him there. So do everything you can to help a child include you there. Be sure that you're rewarding his efforts to respond to you. We talked about that with the train example. Even if a child were a little bit mad but he made eye contact and he whined a little bit, that's a response. He's responding to your action of keeping the object that he wants. And so you reward that. You give him that. The reward there would be giving him the train, but let's just say that a child who doesn't initiate suddenly walks toward you a little bit. Well, you better put down what you're doing and just focus all of your attention on him. And if he likes being tickled and swung around, whatever his little reward would be, do it because he's doing something that he's not consistently been able to do. And so we've certainly got to reward his early attempts so that he becomes more motivated to try to do those things again. Let me just say a thing about rewards. Who gets to decide what's rewarding to a child? It's never you. <laughs> it's always the child. Sometimes as therapists we try to give artificial reinforcers like stickers or suckers. I guess suckers wouldn't be a good example for some kids because they love candy. But, you know, we'll just really try to give them something that's totally unrelated to whatever it is, whatever behavior or skill that we're trying to hone. And so it seems a little bit disjointed, and then the child doesn't really respond to the reward. Natural consequences are the best reward. So, again, the child is looking up at you and smiling. And, again, this is a kid who might have difficulty interacting, that you rarely get eye contact, but all of a sudden he approaches you. <gasps> you know, you need to do the best thing you can to make sure that he'll try that again so that you're reinforcing that behavior that he uh, just demonstrated there. Let's say <coughs> excuse me, that you've got a glass of iced tea or Coke or your water bottle, whatever it is that you drink, and a child comes up and is pretty curious about it, and then he looks at you, taps your hand and grab your hand. That's huge. We want to reward that. So what would we do, just say good job and pick up our water and walk away? No, you've got to give him a drink. <laughs> now, if you're a therapist, that may gross you out, and you may not want to drink after that child, and that's okay too, but you've certainly got to reinforce. And, again, don't write me and say that that's germy and, you know, poor infection control. And you get the, the spirit of my recommendation here is that we support with whatever would be a natural, pleasant outcome. 
with whatever it is that they're trying to do. So if they're trying to pull you outside, let's say it's a child, again, who doesn't initiate very much and he doesn't, he's not a kid that habitually leads his parents, but he's a kid that really doesn't interact very much at all and all of a sudden he comes over and gets your hand and tries to pull you toward the door, you better get your shoes on and get your jacket on and get ready to go out <laughs> because that little guy needs a reward for that. And we need to be sure that we are always reinforcing the behaviors that we want to see. So final review here, what counts as responding? Anything that's a higher level than a child was previously able to do interactively would be a response. So the example that I just gave, the little boy that rarely interacts with you suddenly is walking over to you to grab your hand. Oh, that's a huge Social response, so that's what we would count. A kid who doesn't make much eye contact, his eye contact would be a response. It's not always about words. You know, we have to look at these social skills that we're trying to hone. It might be that he followed, when, when you said, hey, look at this, he immediately looked up at it, which is unusual for him. That's a response. For a kid who tries to avoid you like the plague and he suddenly is okay with your presence, and he might not love it, but he's tolerating it, that's a positive response. <laughs> so you have to think about that and look at social skill interaction incrementally so that you're giving children credit for what they're doing that's just at a little bit higher level than it was before. All right, so we are out of time. Let me just say in closing here that children... The kinds of things that you can do also, you can put all of these goals, work them into your everyday routines. We talked about eye contact in the bathtub. We talked about keeping kids with you when you're preparing meals and doing those other kinds of chores. We talked about social games. We talked about play with toys. Those are all activities that all families participate in, and you want to meld your strategies into those activities so that we're keeping him with us all day, so that we're getting on his level for eye contact. You know, when we're feeding him, we're sitting right across from him. If he's in, uh, a lot more, uh, his self-help skills are a lot more advanced than his language skills, and he's feeding himself, and he's sitting at his little, at the table, you know, in a big boy chair, even a little toddler chair or a high chair, we just put our faces right in front of him so that he has an opportunity to look at us. And, again, these, those strategies that we talked about, those can be weaved through every activity that a family would do. So think about that. All right. I pulled all of this information from my therapy manual. Let's talk about talking, which was released in fall of 2017. That book is not always on sale. But it's about to be, and it's September 27, 2018. I'm saying that because these shows, you know, live on in infinity. They're never gone. Uh, so if, even if you're listening to this, you know, five five years from now, <laughs> who knows what it will be like, like then. But currently, let's talk about talking is not always available. It's a product that we just get to offer periodically because it's uh, really hard to produce. So that's about to be on sale again. And I want you to look for it if you don't have it yet because it's an incredible resource. And so if you want more detail about how to do the things that we talked about in today's show to facilitate social interaction in toddlers, get yourself a copy of that book. One resource that I do have available every day of the week, of the month, of the year is my therapy manual, Teach Me to Play With You. And so that manual lists... So dozens and dozens and dozens of social games like peekaboo and patty cake and hide and seek and ring around the rosies and row row your boat, all those little fun games to get that interaction going and 
and teaching a child how to be with you. And the best part about that book is it's, it has step-by-step instructions. And it has a list of a child's goals sequentially. So the first easiest goal for peekaboo, the next easiest goal, the next easiest goal, so that you, as a therapist you can really walk through that and show some nice progress in your documentation. And as a parent, you're going to figure out exactly what you should be doing, and you don't have to try to guess at what a little goal could be within that game for your child to demonstrate that next little rung of development there. It's all laid out for you. So super, super resource there. For Teach Me to Play With You, you can also use the coupon code PODCAST, so P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and save yourself 10 bucks on that book if you want to get that. All right, so that's all for social interaction and, and better uh, responsiveness from a child. Those were our strategies and the things that we looked for for that. That's our first big area that we treat with toddlers with language delays and differences. The next area is receptive language, which is closely linked to cognition. So that's what we're going to be talking about next week and uh, in that show. So. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you have a fabulous week, and we will pick it back up next time. Have a great week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.